Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. Seeing the prevalence of the things that are happening and just the incredible geographic distribution has been pretty depressing, <laughs> but certainly speaks to the fact that this is a national problem. This is something that's happening, you know, in places that also consider themselves like progressive cities. ProPublica has teamed with more than 100 news outlets to document the growing number of hate crimes across the U.S. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Joining me on the phone today is Rachel Glickow. She's a journalist and the partner manager for ProPublica's Documenting Hate Project. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you. So to start with, can you give us sort of an overview of documenting hate? How did this sort of come about? Sure. So in the fall, ProPublica did a large-scale project working with newsrooms around the country to track problems people were having voting during early voting and during the election. So essentially, they took that model and replicated it for this project because in the weeks after the election, there was a lot of chatter and some initial evidence that there was a spike in hate incidents happening. So seeing this happen, they I wasn't there at the time, but a bunch of journalists here decided to look into, well, how can we know if hate crimes are actually going up after the election? Let's look and see what the data is like. And what they found is that the data is really flawed. The FBI collects this information every year from local and state police departments, but local and state police departments are not obligated to send that information up to the federal government, so many don't. And as a result, the data is just missing a lot of information. So in 2015, for example, the FBI estimated that there were something like 6,000 hate crimes nationally that year. But the Bureau of Justice Statistics also does a survey to try to get at how many hate crimes actually happen. And they estimate that there could be a quarter of a million hate crimes every year. So there's obviously a big gap there. And, you know, in this initial reporting, that is what our reporters found. And seeing that there was there's insufficient data, they decided, well, why don't we take the election land project and model it and do a project looking at hate crimes to see if we can collect data and have a better sense of really how many, how often these incidents are happening. Let me ask you to clarify something. You sort of uh-huh. said that this is something that they had found in their, in their, their research. Is it that they found that there wasn't a lot of research behind it, or did they actually find that there was a, a larger or greater incident since the election? So they didn't get an answer to that, but what they found was that the there was a huge gap in what existing data is available. So the FBI data and the Bureau of Justice Statistics survey, there was this huge gap. Groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center say there was an increase since the election, and Brian Levin, who's a really well-known researcher in this area, also has written about the fact that several cities, about nine or ten cities, have seen an increase. But 
they didn't find an answer to that question in their initial research. What they found was that the existing data is full of holes. So we have to try to see what we can do to get better data so we have a sense of how prevalent this is in general. So how does the, how does the project work then? How do you gather data? So we have two main branches of the project. The first is working with civil rights groups to get their data because people often go to certain groups um, and those groups track um, hate crimes very closely. So the Southern Poverty Law Center is one of our partners and they give us data about incidents that have been reported to them. And we're working with a couple others to try to get their data. So essentially, they are sending us this information about incidents that people have told them about, and we're inputting them into a central database. And also in that database are incidents coming to us from a big crowdsourced uh, project we're doing. So essentially, on our site on documentinghate.com, we have a form that uh, anyone can fill out to report a hate incident be it a hate crime or a bias incident, we're, we're keeping it open in terms of what the person experienced could be anything sort of in the realm of hate. Determining whether it was a crime can sometimes be a little tricky because it's different in every state. So we're collecting, we're essentially saying to the public, hey, were you, were you a victim or a witness of some sort of hate incident? Tell us about it. And they can fill out this form, and that information will be fed directly into that central database. Um, and we're also working on getting uh, police reports. Um, we're all, we are also working a little bit with uh, First Draft Media to get social media to see people talking about these incidents on social media. Um, so we're also going to various other places to try to gather information and eventually put it in this database. What we're doing is we're working with more than 100 newsrooms around the country to verify the incidents that come into the database because what essentially our uh, perspective is that when something comes in, be it from the public or from the middleman, shall we call them, of the civil rights groups, we want a journalist to authenticate um, that tip before we consider it. Uh, a fact, right? So it's it's a massive uh, undertaking to essentially see how much we can report on in this database. Um, so what we've done is we've set up this coalition of more than 100 newsrooms and allow journalists access to the database so they can search for incidents in their area or look for patterns and report on those stories. And they can actually update the status of each incident in the database so that we can keep track over time of how much uh, we've done so far. So, you know, can you give me sort of a description of what you qualify as a hate incident? So we use the um, BI's definition of a protected class. So the FBI definition of a hate crime is essentially uh, laws that add penalties for offenders who commit crimes because of animosity towards the victim's race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, gender, sexual orientation, disability, or other protected status. So if a person is a victim of a crime that also felt they were targeted because of one of those sort of categories, so because they are Hispanic or because they are an immigrant, that is what um, can qualify something as a hate crime or a hate incident. So essentially, um, it's figuring out if the person was targeted for a crime because of one of these particular protected categories. Okay, so, but this isn't a crime doesn't necessarily have to have been committed to report some sort of incident. Right. A person 
person could be targeted because of one of those categories and might not know if it's a crime or not. So we see a lot of, say, harassment and intimidation may or may not be a crime depending on the state or depending on if the police want to investigate it. So we sort of leave it open-ended. If the person was targeted because of one of these categories in some fashion, that is what we consider a hate incident. So you, you say you have 100 newsrooms that you're working with. And what is it they're doing with this information? What types of stories are they telling? So we have a running list on documentinghate.com of all of the stories people have reported so far. But they've been doing a huge variety, and it's been really interesting to see what people have done in both big and small newsrooms. So we have local newsrooms that will often report on a single incident at a time. So the Arizona Republic did a great story about a family in Phoenix who came home to discover anti-Semitic graffiti, but were very defiant about it and did this great interview with them in the, the day after the incident had happened. We had the Cincinnati Inquirer do a story that went pretty viral uh, last week about a woman who went to a Bon Jovi concert and experienced a biased incident there targeting her because of her ethnicity. So we have local local outlets doing sort of these stories about a single incident. We also have national outlets that are doing more sort of trend stories looking at patterns they find. So BuzzFeed did two stories about um, hate incidents happening in schools, in K-12 schools specifically, looking at kids who are using uh, racist or anti-Semitic or xenophobic language um, or alluding to certain things like the border wall um, or saying things like Trump is going to deport you and your family. Uh, so they did two deep dives into incidents that were happening in schools and found uh, a huge number of very disturbing things. We also have had Univision um, is a partner, and they've done a lot of great work looking at incidents that specifically affect Latinos. They were the first ones to find this pattern we found of uh, people saying, go back to your country. And it certainly, they found a, a, a big chunk of incidents that were affecting Latinos. But over time, we, did, we discovered in the tips that this was something that was affecting a lot of different people. Um, all sorts of people of color, um, and even some not. Um, so we had a couple partners write about that, about this rhetoric of go back to your country, which incidentally is also the same rhetoric that was used to hate crimes, to big sort of well-known hate crimes, one in Kansas City and one in Oakland uh, that both took place this year, in which the perpetrators used that exact language along those lines. So those are some of the things that they have done. And we've also had a lot of reporting on vandalism, especially swastika vandalism. We've had a couple partners look at that and we made a, we did some work on that and mapped that. We also mapped the JCC bomb threats earlier in the year. So it's really a wide variety of, of stories that people are working on, but really we've, we've gotten coverage from around the country in cities big and small, with using tips from the database. You know, well, let me ask you this first. When did you sort of get involved in this project? So I was hired in February. So the project launched in mid-January, and I came on shortly after so that I could help manage the coalition part of the project of getting all the newsrooms onboarded and getting them the information they need to get started and do the reporting. 
How do you get people involved in this? Not just necessarily newsrooms, but people to report. You, you mentioned that you had a partner with Univision. I, I imagine they have some way that they can get the message out to, to get people to participate. What, what is it that you guys are doing? So one thing that we ask the partners to do is to republish that form on their site. So when you join the project, the newsrooms share that form in some way, either by embedding it directly. Some We have some video partners who've uh, shared it through a link on social. But essentially what we ask is that if you become a partner, you help us cast an, a wider net of getting in touch with the public and, and particularly with their readers or viewers or listeners. So that's one way that we are promoting it is to get the media partners to share it. They're audience. And we also have a couple civil rights groups that have been sharing it with their local communities. And also by doing things like this, where we, you know, talk to the media about the project to sort of spread awareness that it's going on and that people, if they have been a victim or a witness, can can report that to us. Okay. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is to help to what I think is a really you know, powerful journalistic uh, tool to to sort of share information and to, you know, feed in and then to use the information from this project to to reinforce your reporting on these these very important issues. You know, what's been you've been there since February. What's been your sort of takeaway as this project has unfolded? I think that a big takeaway is that it's not this isn't a problem that's limited to certain areas or is sort of prevalent in specific regions. We've seen this; these incidents happen all over the country, and it's really, it's not even, it's not something you could say that's urban versus rural or south versus north. These incidents happen everywhere. And I think just seeing the prevalence of the things that are happening and just the incredible geographic distribution has been pretty depressing, (laughs) but certainly speaks to the fact that this is a national problem. This is something that's happening, you know, in places that also consider themselves like progressive cities or uh, states and terrible things are happening in everywhere you can imagine. I think another thing that I have taken away is that there's a lot of the things we've seen reported to us fall into the category of something like harassment or intimidation. So we do get things like assault and a lot of vandalism too, but I would say that physical harm is in sort of the minority of the things that we have seen so far, partially because when someone is physically harmed, that That information tends to get reported more quickly in the news, so a person, I think, might be less likely to write to us about it because it will, you know, get picked up quickly by local media. So a lot of what we see is this sort of harassment of xenophobic or racist rhetoric that people face in all, in pretty much every public place you can think of. So we had a, co- a couple partners do stories about these incidents happening on public transportation because they have been happening in New York and Boston, for example. But they also happen basically in every part of a community that you can think of. So like I mentioned, schools, universities, and stores, in, in the streets, in traffic, pretty much just sort of every part of public life. So I think that surprised me a bit in terms of seeing how much we were seeing of 
people being verbally assaulted, I guess you could say, by strangers because of how they look. Well, I guess the commonality is it's wherever there happen to be human beings that (laughs) things like this occur. Sad to say. And that's why I think it's so important to a project like yours that gives people a place where they can report this type of information, but also, you know, maybe they're not going to get any recourse, you know, legally, but, you know, this is a way for them to contribute to the larger dialogue, the larger examination, so that we can all try to get our hands around this and figure out ways to deal with it. So, you know, you know, I asked you sort of what your your, your takeaway was. What type of numbers are we talking about in the number of incidents reported since you, know, you began you know, gathering information in January? So I would say that we're now up to around probably 3,000 because we also have to account for things like trolls and duplicates because sometimes people send us news stories and they send us the same news story. So around 3,000 so far. And we try to categorize these as we go along so that we can sort of filter things that are either trolls or not hate incidents so that they don't get counted towards the ultimate number of things that we're trying to look at or that we've already authenticated. So 3,000 incidents that you've verified? No, 3,000 that have been reported to the database. We've, oh. we've verified something like in the range of 400, but we have journalists working on hundreds and hundreds of tips between the more than 100 newsrooms. So we have hundreds currently being worked on as well. So what is the process for verification? You mentioned, you know, if there was a crime or a police report, but how do you, you know, how do you, you know, verify something, you know, you know, I was on a bus and somebody said something to me. How do you go about that? So that's a good question. We ultimately leave it up to each newsroom to verify a tip as they would any other. And as you point out, each incident is going to be different. So Something that the Bureau of Justice statistics found was that more than half of hate crime victims don't report to police. And certainly we've seen in the database that many people don't ultimately report to police. So that can make it a little bit trickier because if there's a police report, that can help a lot, especially with these confrontations. They're filmed and a bunch of those have gone viral in the last six months of these, particularly on public transportation of of these things happening. So we leave it to each newsroom to do their due diligence as they would with any other tip and give the appropriate context of explaining what they did in the reporting process, just like they would any other story. So that's one reason that we're working directly with newsrooms is we are picking trusted partners who we believe can do good reporting. So how could a journalist or newsroom uh, get involved in this? What's a good way to get started? We have a sign-up form on documentinghate.com for newsrooms. So if it's something that you're already reporting on or that you work on as a beat, we definitely are interested in hearing from you. So documentinghate.com is a sign-up that we we'll get and see. Let me ask you for questions about yourself. How did you get involved in this type of uh, uh, journalism? So I have worked on a number of these sort of large-scale collaborative projects. 
I worked on one called Ghost Boat um, when I worked at Medium. Medium used to have an editorial team, and that was a big project we worked on in, I think that was in 2015-16. And then I actually was working as a reporter at Univision last year, and I worked on the Election Land Project representing Univision. So I worked directly with ProPublica during the two weeks leading up, leading up to the election, reporting for Univision and working on election land. So I was very familiar with how this project, these types of projects work and how you can work with the different newsrooms and coordinate tips. So those were some of the things that I had previously worked on before documenting hate. So can you talk a little bit about election land, about um, sort of the development of that project and, and what it sort of became and and how would it cover the campaign? It didn't cover the campaign because we were looking at people's voting problems specifically. So basically I, you know, I was working as one of the participants at the time, so I have a little bit less, you know, knowledge about it, but we basically what we did was we had a, a, also a central database of tips that we could look at and then follow up directly with sources. Uh, who were people who had some sort of problem when they went to vote. So, like, their name wasn't on the on the voting roll, or they saw people trying to intimidate voters outside the polls, or, um, but essentially problems that people were having, they could report those directly to the project. And then local and national reporters around the country could go and see what was actually happening. So... It worked in very much the same fashion that we had a central place where people could get tips from. We actually had on Election Day a big newsroom where we brought together a bunch of national outlets and graduate students and first draft media who worked with us on that project as well and worked with, I think it was more than 100 people in in this newsroom uh, here in New York at CUNY, the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, of which I am an alum. So Basically, it was using a central database of tips to distribute to journalists and figure out what kind of voting problems were happening. And ultimately, what came of that was that there were less problems, I think, than I had personally anticipated there would be. And some of the problems were very mundane or sort of things that could have happened in any other election, like a polling place not having enough pens or just a voting machine that broke on election day. So there were far fewer incidents of, say, intimidation. There were some, to be sure, but we basically wanted to track and see what we could find, especially since there was a lot of rhetoric from Trump and from other people threatening about fraud. And that was not something that we saw on election day. It was a lot of these very run-of-the-mill type problems involved in voting and certainly some things with people not being on the voter roll or having problems with provisional ballots and that kind of thing, but certainly not large-scale fraud was something we did not see during that project. So was that information, the information you gathered from election land, was that able to inform any reporting after the election to sort of talk about the concerns around voter fraud? We have actually a person who is now dedicated to the who's working on civil rights and who worked on that project at ProPublica, who has been continually reporting on election issues and was able to do that also through uh, her reporting on election land. So we're talking about these two big projects, election land and documenting hate. 
which are sort of creating these these central data repositories for tips about their particular subjects. How does this type of reporting work? I mean, what what's good about this type of reporting? What what can it can it accomplish? The thing that it can accomplish is getting a lot of people to work on the same issue at the same time and to therefore be able to get a better snapshot of what's happening in a huge geographic area and have that information live in one place. So it's just a really efficient way of looking at a specific beat and trying to get answers around that specific beat and to do stories around that beat in a way that is organized and you get a much better sense of the totality of an issue when you have uh, lots and lots of people working on something at the same time. So it's just been really exciting to see because a lot of a project like Election Land hadn't really been attempted before, particularly around an election. And First Draft actually wound up doing a similar project in France during their elections. It was slightly different. I think it had more to do with fact-checking, but Election Land is sort of a an innovator in how journalists can work together on a single issue. Well, that, that's cool, and, that, and that's actually something that I think is really you know, amazing being able to put this this effort into it and to bring so many different resources together to pool that work and create something bigger that you, you can create. What do you see as the, the long-term goal or outlook for a documenting hate? What are you hoping to accomplish moving forward? We are hoping to fill in the gaps about the data. We want to see how much good data we can get from around the country to have a better sense of how often hate crimes really happen and hate incidents really happen. And we also want to see how much reporting we can do collectively on this specific issue that has been such a hot button topic in the past year or so. So to see how much we can fill in the gaps data-wise and also see how many in-depth stories we can do as a group of more than 100 newsrooms. You know, you hear something like this where you you get a project that, that gathers so much information about something. You know, this is, you know, obviously it's going to create great stories. It's going to create great opportunities to tell good stories in, in journalism. But, you know, you wonder, you know, what's what's next for something like this or how can this help you know, move the society forward or move the, the, the political landscape forward. And maybe that's something maybe not, not that ProPublica would do or maybe even necessarily these new newspapers, maybe some of your partners like, you know, that, that may be who advocate for certain issues that they're able to use this data to try to, you know, change social action, try to, you know, work with lawmakers to create new legislation that sort of addresses some of the concerns that come out of this. You know, is has there been any, any talk like that going on around this? Not really yet, but the idea of doing a project like this is to get better information into the hands of decision makers. So ultimately, we hope to do that. Well, that and hopefully, and I think, you know, that's that's where all this begins is, you know, gathering the information, educating people, and just continuing to gather more and more information is just going to make this a much, much richer project. And, and I think is bodes well for as long as you can keep this going. Rachel, thanks for, for being on the podcast. This is great. I'm going to make sure I have a link to this and invite any journalist who's listening to this to check out the stories, check out what some of the other newslets have, news outlets have done around this 
excellent reporting on a big issue that, that we all should be concerned about. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Next time on It's All Journalism. I think half the states have passed laws that make it very, very difficult to make those videos public. So the whole idea that this was going to create greater transparency and accountability between police and the public seems to have gone by the wayside. And, you know, I doubt that in the Trump administration there'll be any pressure to to change that. So it's really going to depend on the individual localities. Join us next week when Miranda Spivak of DePaul University fills us in about transparency and secrecy in local government. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.